Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast, and my name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. We are here to talk about behavioral finance as it pertains to ordinary investors, and it's the sort of thing that people are really interested in. I'm so excited today to be having our special guest, Kelly Keene. Kelly is a best-selling author and a personal finance educator. She's written several very well-received books on personal finance and is recognized as a voice of common sense in personal finance. She makes regular appearances on both BNN and The Maryland Dennis Show, and it is my pleasure to have you on the podcast today, Kelly. How are you? Great to be with you, John. I'm so good, and uh, I love that you're starting this podcast. Can't wait to dig into your book more. Of course, I got one of the early reviews, which is great, and gave a glowing testimonial because your work is amazing. So... Uh, I'm just super excited about having this conversation with you. Great. Let's begin. Thank you for, for, for the kind words. I wanted to begin by asking you about your career trajectory and what it was that caused you to give up your career as an advisor in order to work as an educator and, and an advocate. Yeah, great question. Um, certainly, certainly was a catalyst for the, the you know, the, the way that my career has turned out. So, um, I had a very interesting and lucky career, graduated early and landed a job at 21 with one of the, the big banks. And I had 28 branches that I looked over on the investment side and not just to age myself quite a bit, John, not one of my branches had anyone that had their mutual funds license. That's how long ago we're talking about. And so I'd go and educate my branches, get them, you know, help them out to get licensed. And if you had a million dollars plus, you would come and see me and I would help you figure out where you went within the bank, if it was brokerage or high net worth or, or trust or what have you. And what was really fascinating was, you know, at that young age to see someone who looked poor, that they were sitting across my desk and wanted to renew $30 million of GICs. Or because I was an investment manager, maybe a bank teller would refer over, you know, um, like a local celebrity or something that everyone thought was super wealthy, but because yeah. at a bank, of course, didn't have the money. Yeah, exactly. you got their net worth statement. They're like millions of dollars in the hole, and you're like, why are you sitting across from my desk? I'm an investment manager. You don't have anything to invest. Right. So then I left the bank. I started my own firm. And, and saw that same kind of behavior, you know, these people that that like maybe grew up in the depression and couldn't spend a cent once they retired. Right. And and one client, in fact, he was worth, we think, around 50 million dollars. We couldn't even figure it out. He had assets all over the world. He was building things in churches in the Ukraine and he was 84 years old. No kids, no spouse. He had no one to leave his money to other than his charitable endeavors. And he would literally burst his pipes every single year by not turning up his heat in Edmonton, Alberta, because he just wanted to keep sweaters and mitts on his hands. So I was like, okay, that is not wealth, um, having a lot, not spending it. And then the antithesis were a lot of clients I had, you know, been through a couple divorces, have two or three Mercedes sports cars, live these great lives and are millions of dollars in the hole. So earning more money, but not being able to save anything, that also isn't wealth. So then I started to go and uh, study the principles of psychology as a non-psychologist, but someone who had been in the industry for 20, yeah. 12, 12 years, sitting across the table from clients, sold my firm, and uh, the last 18 years I've been writing books and, and educating Canadians on money matters. 
And it's funny because, you know, a lot of what you say now, you touched on psychology, so many things that people are coming to realize, maybe a bit belatedly, that personal finance is often about psychology. It's not about numbers. It's not about, being, you know, being able to crunch and apply formulas. It's about focus and discipline and managing your own behaviors and thinking about the way you approach life. And it's very different for very, very many people. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions people have right now? So you've already touched on sort of the people that, that look poor, but are in fact very wealthy and the people who show us as being wealthy, but in fact are penniless. What would you say are the misconceptions people have about how to go about managing their personal finances day to day? I think it's exactly what you said. I think we need to put a fine point and not kind of go over that, that element of it really is that psychology behind it. I mean, it's the simplest thing in the world to be healthy, right? You exercise more, you eat less. If you do keto or you do this or you do that, it doesn't really matter. We know what to do. Why do we not do it? Why are 42% of doctors either overweight or obese, right? It's, we, you know, yes, financial literacy is important. It's important to understand basic concepts. That's going to give you some confidence and self-esteem. Like if you're going to start taking up golf, you want to know that there's 18 holes and, and, and uh, bogey's a bad thing. If you're going to start watching hockey, you want to know there's three periods in a hockey game and a hat trick is a good thing. Okay, so we want to know some basics. It's going to make the game a lot more fun. But, you know, I think back, John, and you and I um, certainly are close enough in age that you'll remember when participation were in the schools, right? Hal yes. and Joanne teaching people how to eat and move and do all of those things. I had nutrition class in school. But yet, since participation, obesity rates have skyrocketed in our country. You know, we really, you and I have written books. There's tons of information out there if you want it uh, on personal finance, on cleaning up your credit, on portfolio management, everything you could possibly want. Yet people are in more debt. They're, they're struggling more. It's, it's, there's just, you know, there's a lot going on. So I'll unpack it. Number one, there's a lot of apathy. Yeah. And when we're apathetic, it sounds super simple, but I spent a lot of time, I did so many interviews during COVID, hundreds if not thousands, because you could do it from your living room and not travel. Right. And I thought deeply, like, why are people not paying attention to their finances? And this could be someone who's high net worth that they're not paying attention to a part of their finances, right? Like it's very, very broad. Finances doesn't just mean, oh, I've, I don't have debt, I have assets, I'm fine. No, finances is, is very broad, as you know. And when you're in an apathetic state, for whatever reason, lack of knowledge, don't know what to do, just stressed out, uh, isn't enough money at the end of the month, um, it's hard to get out of there. Because now, to get to, and I've served on the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada on their first national steering committee, um, and they talk a lot about financial resilience, so here's apathy, here's financial resilience. There's some huge stages here that you have to go through. You have to go through maybe some anger, some frustration, right. some irritation. And what I find a lot of Canadians do is they come out of apathy, they get through some of those kind of stages, and then they just go back down to apathy again. I can't do it, I don't get it, not good at math, my partner's gonna look after it, whatever it is. And they just don't get up to resilience. So um, I think sometimes these things sound really simple and, and and you and I usually only get 30 seconds or two yeah. minutes sound bites on TV to talk about it. Right. Um, but it deserves more attention and conversation because we don't get these fundamentals that, oh gosh, I'm in financial apathy because you know, maybe it's you just can't tackle your estate plan because right. you're just gonna stay in apathy because it's just too much 
to think about your death and to think about your your kids fighting after because how do you split the the assets like whatever it is um it's really easy to stay there right it's it's funny because a lot of cognitive errors that people make are psychological so on the one hand it's like you have to know what the problem is in order to, to fix it but in, sometimes we're, we're poor at self-diagnosing and and so when people say oh uh, I, yeah, I, I i'm just going to hire kelly or i'm going to go read this book or, or go to this course but um oftentimes we're, we do a poor job of assessing ourselves and, and actually going back and saying, you know, uh, people, and in fact, people will say, I know what to do, but they don't motivate themselves to do it, which is the, your, you know, your point about the 42% of the uh, physicians. So uh, that's, that's, thank you. That's, that's a useful uh, takeaway. Do you think behavioral economics is the sort of thing that could be taught to help people understand more about personal finance? So moving from the, the general topic to maybe a specific subset, do you think that would be helpful or should we keep it more just on the general in terms of what we teach kids coming out of uh, high school these days and, and anybody who needs any kind of credit counseling or any other kind of financial advice? I think it's essential, John. I think it's a great question and it, it goes part and parcel. So I'm just coming up with a platform right now called MoneyWise Workplaces and it's mm -hmm. an educational platform for uh, to help employers help their employees gain skills and confidence when it comes to their finances because we know how stressed people are. Right. And we definitely have the behavioral component there because if there isn't the nudges, you know, like if I say I'm going to work out today and I say I'm going to eat the apple and eat this food and do it and then I don't, it's like what, you know, what happened? What was what, you know, what was the, um, you know, choice architecture? Where, did I not have the apple out? What was the workout gear not there? Was the like, what you know, what was it? It was like, yeah, like if I had my shoot, you know, Sean Acker, the happiness advantage. I, I love his work. And, and he talked about like, he wanted to get working out. So he would literally sleep in his workout, his running outfit. So shoes were, go. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Shoes yep. were like right there as soon as he hopped out of bed. So it's like, how do we create that choice architecture for um, people to nudge them in a way where they don't feel heavy handed, where they feel that they had like a coach, they had somebody help them. I love Noom. So Noom is this app mm -hmm. that is taking you know, the behavioral side when it comes to food. And I've been seeing, you know, I know nobody watches TV, but you and I do traditional TV. So you might watch it once in a while. And their commercials are so interesting, you know, so this one guy's eating pizza at his desk and the thing pops up. It's like, or I think he went, he was at the office and he grabbed some food that was just kind of some pizza was delivered and he grabbed a piece and a little thing came up and said, are you only eating that because it's free? <laughs> you know, put it down. Right. You weren't going to eat any pizza this week. Like, Sometimes we just need these nudges. Now, how do we take technology and intersect it with financial education and empowerment and all of that? Um, I think we're all learning. And I know you had David Lewis on, on your yeah. podcast recently and, and him and his work and, and his team at BWorks and, and other work is, is amazing. So yeah, I think it's essential because right. it's not just enough to know. Now we need to know how. And do you think, do you think it would be better if we could actually make it a bit fun? I, I, I wonder if, if, if anything to do with make it less intimidating, let's put it that way, instead of fun, which is great, but it, it just, just less of a stigma. What can you do to help people get on with it because it's not going to freak people out? Well, and that's the thing, you know, I, I'll, I'll just say one thing that I've done well over 18 years, and the only reason I've had a career as somebody not in the financial industry, but educating uh, the public is that I speak very simply about complex terms. And this keeps me up at night. 
Like, I mean, this, this program that I'm creating for the workplaces, it's like, okay, how can I explain that a little bit better? How can I really get you to understand? Because I've talked to high, like I've done tours for high net worth individuals with banks, John, and you know, you go in, I, I remember doing this one tour for one of the banks and in the morning, one of the women didn't know what a GIC was. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay, I'm speaking way too broad. And in the afternoon, she was asking about flow through shares. So like, I, I really lose sleep about how can I um, really communicate to people uh, and, and make these things um, easy and simple and break them apart and then kind of do the Dr. Oz thing, right? Like the thing I think that people loved about Dr. Oz was, you know, this episode is all about olives and how olives have all these whatever, phyto whatever, phenol whatevers and go now today and go home and get some olives. And you're like, okay, I can do that. Like I've talked with Rob Carrick from the Globe and Mail a lot about this too. And, and, and he has a lot of care and concern for Canadians as well. Like how do we make it like chunk it down, do this one thing, this is going to get you ahead and then understand that, that you have agency over your finances, but also Carol Dweck's work um, on, you know, that growth mindset that, yes, these little things that you do do make a difference, right? right. That sit up isn't going to make a difference today. That $25 a month for your kids' ESP isn't going to make a difference today, but that these little actions do uh, make a difference. But you're right. As soon as something shrouded in embarrassment and shame, and again, I, I worked with very high net worth people, and sometimes I still am hired by financial institutions to work with their high net worth clients, doesn't mean they don't have shame and embarrassment, you know? Um, doesn't mean they're not struggling with financial issues. They're just struggling at a whole different level. Right. So we all have that. We all have some financial skeletons. Um, and, you know, I, I think, too, it's just like, Back in the 1960s, we used to whisper the word cancer. Today, we run for the cure. Like, we yeah. would never, ever expect people to self-diagnose, people to feel ashamed if they have a diagnosis. Why is there still such a stigma when it comes to people's finances? Okay, so I, I wanted to ask you about something that you, you, it, I, I think I know the answer because, because I know you personally and because you're so high energy. But I wanted to ask you, I have to ask, would you consider yourself to be an optimist or a pessimist? And then I've got a, I've got a, I've got a follow-up question. Oh, absolutely an optimist. Okay. I wear, I wear rose-colored glasses. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So that, a lot of that, of course, is what bullshift is about, right? So there's a lot of shifting your attention to be bullish. And, and that's sort of what, what's going on in the world. And I think optimism, just, just so that we're completely clear, optimism bias is one of many, many dozens of biases that we all have, and we're all biased. Optimism bias is probably the best bias. It's the sort of thing that people think of as being great because it correlates to the things you talk about, happy marriages, successful careers, good relationships with your kids. But there is a chance that optimism can actually get you into a bit of trouble if you whistle past the graveyard and wear the rose-colored glasses and use whatever other, uh, you know, bad metaphor you want in terms of not being careful about the things that you could be careful about. What do you think can be done to rein in excessive optimism in your approach to your financial welfare. And you're right. Optimism bias is a huge issue. And, and again, one of those blind spots we don't even see. So I, it really comes down to this again, is the psychological aspect of being healthy, being wealthy and, yeah. and whatever that means to you and knowing thyself. I mean, every great philosopher, this is the thing that they yeah. say, right? Know yourself. And, 
that's what I help my readers and viewers and participants to try to understand and explore is where are your blind spots? Where are you likely to get in trouble? And then how can you plan for that? I know I'm a spender. I know I'm an optimist. So, you know, when I'm sitting down with my own financial professionals, it's like, where can I get myself in trouble? Where am I getting myself in trouble? And then what are my checks and balances for reining that in? So because I know I'm an optimist, and even though I have financial expertise, I still have experts on my side, right? That's something that's going to help me um, make sure that in my business and, and, and as a business owner and all that type of stuff, wear your rose-colored glasses, hire the professionals, right? Um, you know, I have overspending checklists. I have all types of different stuff. And, and by the way, it's called a frugal husband. Uh, it's really great at helping this. Just because I'm a personal finance educator doesn't mean I don't like stuff like everyone else. So it's just really knowing like these things about yourself and then like dispelling the shame and the embarrassment and going, oh, okay, I have a propensity for this. Great. How do I mitigate that? And who you know, what other skills and, and, and information or knowledge do I need? And then if you can, and when you're ready, what professionals do you need to engage with to make sure that you're protected? Okay, great. So that was, uh, that was the happy question. I want to sort of morph now into the, the things that you're doing in your, in your day job now in terms of working with corporations and, and, and uh, helping them to be, uh, helping their employees to be more financially literate. Uh, the National Payroll Institute estimates that employees are so financially stressed these days that they're spending over 30 minutes a day on, on average just being worried about their finances. So that's costing Canadians about, I don't know, $40 billion a year. And I wonder what your thoughts are about that, that level of stress and, and what it means for people. Yeah. And that number was just updated, actually. The Financial Post just had, um, I, I'm on their, their email list. And it's the uh, Financial Wellness Lab. They've just upped that to 50 billion US. It's costing Canadian employers. Okay. So, you know, you take this confluence of coming out of COVID, excuse me, I'm <coughs> just losing my voice here a bit. Coming out of COVID, um, just being so stressed with inflation, with interest rates going up. I mean, if you only had a $100,000 line of credit, and paying interest-only payments, you're looking at probably an extra $4,000 compared to a year before. And mm -hmm. a lot of people have a lot more than that in lines of credit or variable rate interest rates or uh, mortgages. So, you know, you take, and then the rising cost of everything, of course, you take all of that and, and, and then, the, as you said, the self-diagnosis. And people are leaving free money on the table. You know, there's, I'm talking to so many employers that their employees aren't, why don't they match? Exactly. Matching programs, right? We're we're talking here about nudges. We're talking about things that can be done that help people to get a, a, a make better decisions through choice architecture. And that's an idea that was put forward by Richard Th by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein in their book Nudge. And Kelly's working on ways to help employers help their employees to be nudged into making better decisions, save more tomorrow, those sorts of things that will actually lead in what is likely to be a better outcome as you as you move forward. Thank did you, John. I, I, I appreciate that. that. You did an excellent, excellent job. Thank goodness this wasn't live TV, but I think we're kind of all used to these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nowadays. Yeah. And I really lead, you know, you said, like, dare it be fun. I mean, I, I bring, I try to bring humor to our program. It's, you know, video based and, and audio and infographics and long form articles. So regardless of how you like to learn, there's, there's every, every, um, you know, way for you to learn. 
And also, you know, it's like letting, like, it can be really exciting. Like, it's not all about, you know, forego the latte and do this and do that. Because I, that's not the kind of personal finance educator I am. It's like, tell me how to find more money to, to golf and travel and buy more shoes. You got my attention. So, you know, if we can help the average employee and, and, and we can find an extra five to $10,000 a year, I think that's kind of exciting. Now, if you use that to pay down on your debt, if you use it to have more fun, if you use it to save for retirement, there's not going to be any finger wagging in our program, but that's how we lead is how do we find more money? And I think that's a conversation that we're just not having enough in personal finance, that it's all about sacrifice. It's all about putting your head down. It's all, yeah, of course, automate your savings, do all those kinds of things. But, you know, find like, uh, the thing I love most about my nutritionist and when we sit down and create my plan and how we're changing my diet and I'm pretty much keto, but then we have metabolic confusion days is, you know, I get my cheat days so I can have those days where I can just go and have fun and not think about it. Because if it's constantly about scarcity and it's constantly about sacrifice, it's like a diet. People yeah. are going to stick to it for a little bit and then they're going to be worse off actually afterwards. Yeah. So that's, that's a really important thing. I think a lot of what we have to learn in finance is just having the focus and discipline to do the right thing. And it doesn't have to be hard. And it doesn't have to be as, a lot of things. If you make them automatic, you don't even realize. Like if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're having an RSP contribution deducted every, every month and it just goes directly into your RSP, it, it probably stings for the first two or three months. And after that, you, you forget about it. And it's, oh, wow. Oh, and I'm getting a refund in March. Isn't that nice? You know, so it's, it's great. So, okay, I wanted to continue on what, what, where I started a moment ago. Uh, the same NPI study says that about 80% of employees want financial education on the job. And nearly the same percentage want their employer to provide the, the literacy sources, the resources to actually help them learn. What do you think employers should be doing? Um, uh, engaging in my program. <laughs> That's why we created it. I, I mean, I've talked to so many people across the country, so many employees, and they do want this education. They do want it from their employer. They want it bite-sized. They want it easy. They want it actionable. They want it digestible. Uh, they want it, you know, like they've got 10 minutes. They need to take a break. They can watch a video, learn something, do something right away. And they know, hopefully, if it's coming from their employer, it's going to be trusted. It's going to be vetted. And I do have to say that all of the big you know, the, the, the manual lives, the sun lives, the candle lives, they do a wonderful job coming in at a high level, educating employees on, you know, here's your pension plan, here's your group benefits, here's your matching programs, but they can only provide so much servicing and education. And then what happens is people stay in the defaults. They never really look at what they're invested in. They don't realize the benefits such as a savings on fees that they can't get elsewhere. So many things there and leaving free money on the table because there's so much more to their financial life. And you know what, John, there's so many studies that show that like, if you're reading a book, for example, I know people still do that once in a while, not just podcasts. Um, but if you're reading a book and you start to come across a word or a phrase or a concept that you don't understand, your likelihood of continuing is very, very low. So the likelihood of people actually engaging in something that they don't really understand what an RSP is or how it's different from a TFSA or what does that really mean? That's where we want to come in and provide this holistic education that's non-biased. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's no fi you know, financial company supporting it. 
Um, and yeah, and just make it fun and engaging and, and provide those nudges as well. The, the idea of it being non-biased is really interesting because one of the things that I talk about in Bullshift is that uh, everyone's biased in some way. And a lot of, and, and, and part of the problem about bias is that it's often an unconscious bias. Like some people will say I'm biased and, and, and they'll at least self-identify, but most people, most of the time, have blind spots. They're, they're, they have biases that they're not even aware of. And I think if you can do a good job as a, as a teacher, as a coach, as an educator, as a person who guides people, part of what you can do is to help them to uncover their own biases. You know, and, and you know, there's, a, there's a status quo bias. I've always done it this way. Why do I have to do it differently? Well, you know, there's a recency bias. You know, I always did think I, I, this is the way it worked last time. It seemed to work last time. So I'm just going to stick with that. And there's a lot of things like that where people have biases that can be self-harmful and they don't even think about it. And there it is. It, it, it does the harm. And I think if we could actually help people to learn not only about personal finance in the traditional sense, also in the somewhat less traditional ways for you, but also the, the more behavioral ways, all of them are beneficial. It's, it's amazing how you, know, you, you can look at the same problem in different ways. And as you say, different people learn different ways. So you, you just, you never know. You got to try. Yeah, it's so interesting because you're right, unless it's pointed out. So one of my favorite keynotes is talking about all of these biases and how it affects us in everyday life. And when you talk about the recency bias, like, you know, my mom loves to buy lottery tickets and it does not. She's so good with money. She's so smart. She never went into debt. Single mom. She didn't have any money growing up, but she's still mad. She do everything right. But she loves playing the lottery. And I'm like, mom, I tell her the stats. I tell her how she's so much more likely to get killed by a vending machine. Yeah. And she says, but, and what does my mom do? She's 84, she watches TV, but someone won. I saw someone in Richmond Hill. I saw someone in White Rock. So that recency bias, now let's say, no, it doesn't apply to my mom at 84, but let's say she was 44 and is buying lottery tickets. She's not realizing that, hey, you're not hearing that there's actually, you know, more of a chance of like, you passing away from from cancer or this or that and and here's where critical illness is really important or understanding when disability insurance is important because you've got this money making machine that is you as your career but you just don't hear about these things nobody's talking about it there isn't you know it's not in your social feed or or on the news so so yeah it's um it's it's really hard to spot these and and spot these traps great okay so I want to, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to go to the thing that I do at the end of every, uh, of every episode is I have two things that I ask my guests. And the, and the first is a section that's called, that's bullshit. And I'm wondering if you can think of something that, that is in the industry that if, if you uh, could change, what would it be and, and why? Uh, just one. Um... Okay, well, if, if, I probably have enough time that if you've got a couple, I can, I can hear a couple. Well, I mean, the first one is very simple, is I don't think enough time is spent on um, investors, you know, like clients' careers. Like, I really think that that's the fourth main asset class. We talk about cash, you know, fixed income and equity, and we don't, the industry doesn't look holistically at, you know, what a person is doing and how they're earning their money. So, yeah. for example, if you're a professor with tenure, you right. probably are naturally a, ri a less risky person. You're you know, more in a comfort zone, your, your investments probably reflect that. Maybe, I mean, you know, a lot of other things considered. If you look at the asset class as part of the portfolio construction, maybe you should actually be taking some more risk. And then right. someone like an entrepreneur who naturally is taking so much risk, yeah. Uh, yeah. doesn't yeah. have a pension, doesn't have all these things, 
you know, they're probably going to be more risky with their investments and they probably need to balance that out and do exactly the opposite. So I wish more attention was paid to that. And then, I mean, this is just an industry overall, but there's, I think, a lot of lip service paid to, um, you know, servicing the everyday Canadian, making things accessible, um, providing advice and guidance. But, uh, you know, uh, there, there wouldn't be a personal finance educator out there. And I have a lot of great peers and colleagues trying to help in their own way. And you're doing that as well with writing your books. Yeah. Um, you know, is that we still are not helping the average Canadian that really needs help. And I know it's expensive and I know it's hard to do and I don't know what the solution is to that, but I, I do think we need to spend more time in creating automated programs. Um, and that's why we came up with Money Wise Workplaces is how do we create a low cost solution to, uh, you know, help as many people as we can um, in, in, in a fun and engaging way. Well, I, I can mention there's something that I'm doing as well in my sort of spare time. I'm helping with the uh, the FP Canada Foundation, which is a uh, charitable foundation that's actually helping to bring financial planning to underserviced and 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 uh, uh, you know underprivileged uh, communities. So same sort of thing. I, you know, I, I applaud what you do, and I'm very much committed to the same sort of thing because I'm doing the same thing on my spare time too. Uh, my final question then. So we've we've already done the that's bullshit. Now I want to go to the shift happens. Shift Happens is where you talk about if you had a magic wand and you could fix whatever problem is that you had, what would you fix and how would you fix it? Well, whatever problem I had or what well, problem? In, finance, in, in, in the financial services industry, yeah. Whatever problem, you know, I, I love your analysis. I, I remember when the whole fee conversation came out and there was the um, disclosure of fees and you were like, hey, some is being disclosed, some isn't. If you go to, and I remember this John DeGuyism because I've used it, John, where it's like, you go to the mechanic, I can't remember which fee you said that they're disclosing. The you parts know, and the, labor, yeah. Right, they're, yeah, parts and labor, but not the servicing. I just wish that, you know, a magic wand would be, be honest with people, right? Mm -hmm. We uh, Canadians are paying for financial services. Be honest with them about what they're getting, what they're paying for. I think sometimes there's a little too much bank bashing. Like, why should I have to pay to get my money? Well, you get to email your dog walker. You don't have to go to the ATM, get the money, go and get, you don't have to mail a check anymore. You know, like just more more open dialogue, but also not hiding behind this veil of, of not being totally transparent with people about fees or about how they get guidance. Like, you know, your portfolio is too small. You don't have any money to invest. Great. Okay. Well then what do I need to invest? Like there's just so many people not getting help um, because they've been burnt or they've been dissed or what have you. So um, that would be my little magic wand. Okay. Kelly, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always to chat with you. Uh, I want to wish you all the, uh, the best of success with, uh, with your books and your, your endeavors. Uh, maybe we can see you again sometime, but you know, whenever you're in Toronto, please look me up. I'd, I'd love to get together and, and say hello yet again. You know it. Thanks, John. All the best. Uh, continue your amazing work. And I have to applaud you for continuously saying bullshit correctly. I'm not <laughs> sure I would have been able to do that. So good on you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kelly. All the best. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Bullshift, the podcast, was created in support of John DeGuey's book, Bullshift. Available now online and in bookstores everywhere. The comments and opinions are those of the author and his guests. They are for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment advice. 
John DeGuey is an author, public speaker, senior investment advisor, and portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. For more information about John and his books, please visit standup.today. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM.